Our uh, reading today is from Nehemiah 2, verses 9 through 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal, animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the, ga- by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Why are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Thanks, Kara. Uh, Well, let me just uh, welcome you again this morning. Let me join Kara in welcoming you. Um, Have you guys ever seen the the Disney film WALL-E? Remember that film? It's a wonderful film. Uh, You know, it opens in the 29th century in which earth has become a wasteland. Uh, The backstory is right due to consumerism and greed. And one robot remains who is still cleaning. It's Wally. And then one day, another robot shows up. Eve stands for Extraterrestrial Vegetation Evaluator who has, you know, showed up to scan the planet for signs of sustainable life. And she finds a seedling. And then, of course, goes back to the ship. There's a whole lot that goes on, right? But goes back to the ship because this ship is wondering where they can inhabit, where they can actually find life again. And the end of the story is essentially this. If you watch the end credits, this is what happens. You see humans and robots turning this wasteland, this planet, into a paradise. And the plant itself, this little seedling, has grown into a mighty tree. Now, we've been in the book of Nehemiah for about two weeks now, or this is the third week. We've said this, if you're going to understand Nehemiah, you have to understand the larger story of Scripture. In other words, the Bible is not merely 66 separate books. It's really one large narrative. And one of the ways 
Let's put it this way. This is the story. God is rebuilding this world that is lost through sin, and he's making it beautiful again. It's actually not too far off from Wally. And as we talk about rebuilding and thinking about Nehemiah, one of the ways we know that this isn't all about just the physical city of Jerusalem is a section Isaiah. Isaiah 26, the first couple of verses, listen to what it says here. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. And, and here's what some commentators note this, that Jerusalem, as Isaiah is talking here, it is a sign of something bigger to come. That the God who made the world is going to restore all that has been lost because of sin. And guess what? If you go to the end of the story, the end of the book of Revelation, what do you see? You see a heavenly city coming down to heal the world, to make it beautiful again. And let me tell you what this means. The great project of our, of our day, what God is up to in this world, is this, God wants to rebuild you. And then guess what? Through you, he wants to rebuild the world and make it beautiful again. And what we see today is that this work in this passage takes place amidst uncertainty. It takes place amidst the rubble, amidst brokenness, against opposition. And it takes more than a great plan. It takes more than a great leader. It takes faith. It takes faith. So we're going to consider three things today. We're going to consider Nehemiah. Secondly, we're going to consider Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to consider us. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Fathers, we enter in again to the story. Um, would you take our fears, our doubts, even our cynicism in our day, and would you help us to encounter you in your word? That you might change us, rebuild us, remake us. In the midst of a broken world, we pray. Amen. Well, if you remember last week, Nehemiah is freshly off news that the king has granted this amazing request. The king has reversed his decision, is actually going to fund the whole rebuilding of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah sets off. And think about that. At that moment, he has got to have the wind at his back, right? Like, he has been, when he heard the news of Jerusalem and all the problems, he was just deeply cut to the heart. And he was praying, and he was planning, and he was fasting for months. And the king granted his request. He's got to just be just excited. What is God going to do, Right? But then let's be honest for a moment. He hasn't even laid one brick or one stone. Jerusalem is still in trouble and shame. It's been 140 years since that edict which allowed them to go back. And there's been a couple waves that has come back. But let's be honest, it's, it's oftentimes been met with kind of, I don't know, unrealistic expectations, disappointment. And so he goes back amidst uncertainty. Who's to say this plan is even going to work? Who's saying he's going to actually like join him in this project, right? And so he, he 
travels approximately 1,000 miles. It would have taken him several months, right? He didn't just hop on a jet. And he arrives with papers in his hands that the king gave him, right? And right away, in verse 10, look at what he encounters. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. I mean, I mean, just let's forget Netflix for a moment. Like, it's got nothing on the Bible, okay? Like, can anybody think of any better name for antagonist in a story than like Sanballat the Horonite? I mean, come on. This is amazing. And the sidekick, Tobiah, they're not, ex- you know, and, and here's the deal. You know, Sanballat was the governor in the area. He was the local leader. He was the one that was the mover and the shaker. He called the shots. And all of a sudden, this Nehemiah guy shows up. He's not a fan of Nehemiah, right? Now, right as Nehemiah shows up, with the blessing of the king, with the resources of the king, he's met with opposition. He knows it's not going to be easy. And we'll see, this is not going to be easy. But Nehemiah gathers himself for a few days. And as he gathers himself for a few days, he, he, the, the, the text says he grabs a few confidants and sets out to now look for himself what are these walls like? I've heard the news, but let's go evaluate. And he sets out at night. And he sets out at night because he doesn't know who he can trust. And as he goes, he begins to survey the walls. And he begins to see with his eyes just how bad things really are. These were walls that would have been originally 15 to 20 feet high, 3 to 4 feet in depth. And he would have walked approximately one and a half, anywhere to two and a half miles, looking at these walls, which are just knocked down and strewn. And we know it gets really bad because in verse 14, he has to get off his animal. It says this, They went to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. He had to get off his animal. And this is the place right where it would have overseen the Kidron Valley. A few years ago, um, a man and I had the privilege to go to Israel, to go to Jerusalem. I remember walking and seeing the Kidron Valley. This is a deep valley with a city up on a hill. And he would have seen not just merely these bricks, these huge blocks knocked over. They would have been strewn across down the valley. I mean, the thought of even engineering, taking those, those things and rebuilding the wall, that was tremendous work. He would have been... He looked, it's like, I mean, think about this for a moment. Like, Nehemiah has heard the news about these walls, and now he's seeing it with his eyes. See, it's it's one thing to have letters from a king. It's nothing to show up and have local opposition. And the question is, how is he going to respond to what he's seen? I mean, maybe one option would be just to quietly walk out, travel back, and just go right back to that position as a cupbearer. That was pretty easy, pretty comfortable. What's he going to do? How about this? How about those people that he's going to talk to? As he walks and sees these walls, is he going to think any of them are going to want to be a part of this? It's been 140 years. They're jaded. Who's going to get on this plan and be a part of this? 
Think about how much he's thinking in his mind of what could happen. And the question is, how does Nehemiah respond? In verse 16, we, we see that he gathers the priests, the nobles, the officials, and then look at verses 17 and 18, because this is his response. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. This is remarkable. Nehemiah's response, he doesn't even pause. He leans in and with eyes of faith, what does he do? He says, it's time to build. It's time to build. And there's two things he does here that are remarkable. The first is he, he locates their situation, all the trouble they're in, within the story of God's redemptive purposes. Uh, you see, as we look at this, we might say, you know, of course you want to build a wall because you've got to have, like, safety. You've got to have security in that day. And that's a part of it. But the language that Nehemiah uses is particularly significant because commentators know this is not about security. This is about disgrace. At the end of verse 17, he says that we may no longer suffer derision. And that is the same language that is used in Jeremiah 24, where it speaks of God's judgment on his people because of their sin and infidelity, which led to all of this. In other words, he's locating their circumstances in this. They've walked away from God and all the trouble and shame they're in is because of their response to God. And secondly, though, what does he say? Verse 18, he says, God's hand was upon me for good. In other words, listen, guys, in spite of our sin, in spite of what's happened, guess what? This God is on the move. He is on the move to graciously restore this place. You know, and then um, right after, right, right after this, Sanballat and Tobiah catch word that this is going on. And listen to what they say in verse 19. They say this, but, the, but when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Notice for a moment what they're doing. Back in Ezra, there was a moment when they were rebuilding, and the reason why it was stopped by King Artaxerxes the first time was, hey, if you let these people rebuild, they're going to rebel against you. And what do you see Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem doing? They're just picking back up with that slur, trying to discourage it, trying to say, hey, if this happens, don't you see what's going on? And this is what's interesting. You would expect Nehemiah at that point to pull out the king's papers, right? How about them apples, right? Like that's what you would want him to do, right? I got the papers. He's actually running the whole project. It's not what Nehemiah does. 
He doesn't mention the papers. Look at verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper. Listen, Nehemiah's confidence is not in himself. It is not in his plan. It is not in the king's papers. Nehemiah's confidence is in the God of heaven who is at work restoring all that has been lost because of sin. And it's because of this that Nehemiah is able, alongside the people in the midst of the rubble, in the midst of the opposition, to rebuild that which is torn down. To rebuild that which was lost. Let's consider Jesus for a moment. We said this last week that Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah. Remember we said this is, the scriptures are one story. And Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah. Keller last week put it this way. Jesus is the ultimate one who was in the palace, completely safe, and he left all of that to go out into danger to identify with his people. And as he arrived, he saw all the effects of sin of the world. One of my friends uh, and fellow pastors, Brian Gregory, put it this way. And he, speaking of Jesus, felt overwhelmed with sorrow at the ruined walls and the broken down gates of the world. And yet, like Nehemiah, he had come to restore and rebuild, which is what he did. To those broken in body, he healed them. To those broken in spirit, he lifted them up. To those broken in heart, he renewed them. And when the opposition mounted, he was willing to die at their hands. But his work was not yet done, for after three days he rose again. And in rising again, he unleashed the power of a new creation into our world and made promises that he would rebuild all the broken parts, that he would restore what sin and evil had destroyed, and that one day he would come again to set everything right, that as Nehemiah said, there may no longer be any disgrace, but that the glory of God might be all in all. That's where Nehemiah is pointing. So let's consider us. If this is true, if this is what God has done for us in Christ, if this, is, if this is where all things are pointing, what does it mean for us? Let me call us to think of two directions here. Let's look in and, and, and let's look out. Let's begin with in. How about the rubble in your own life? For some of us, let's just be honest, the, the rubble that we're walking in is the broken and fractured relationships that maybe is brought on by the last year and a half to two years. Things are not the same in our relationships with others. We're not as close. We don't trust each other as much. For others of us, it's, it's in this time in which we're isolated and lonely, perhaps we've run to various forms of addiction to try to just feel some, something good, some place of refuge in this time. For some of us, if we're honest, emotionally, we're just not well. We're depressed, we're lonely. There's a darkness you just can't get rid of. 
I mean, some of us, were, you've lost mothers, fathers, grandparents, you've lost a friend, you've lost a caretaker. For some of us, it's, you know, it's just the rubble of our own sin, our own shame. And this is really the question of the day, isn't it? Like, can God do anything in the midst of that? Can he do anything in the midst of those ruins? Can he? Let us take a cue from Nehemiah. He first located the ruins of his day within the story of God. The disgrace that was brought on them because of his people's sin and their exile. And this is what this means for us. You see, that's one part of the story, but if you go back, the bigger story of all of humanity, going back to the garden, what is it? It's that there was a greater exile that took place in the garden when our first parents rebelled against God. And that's why there's sin and there's suffering in this world. In other words, we're a part of this. But here's the news. God is on the move, right? Because of Jesus' victory over sin and death, his promise to return someday, we know that God is on the move. We can take, he can take any situation and bring beauty out of brokenness, glory out of shame, hope in the midst of loss. I think of thinking about what what. What words from Jesus to, to bring this day? And, and for me personally, it's, it's the season of weariness <clears throat> and heavy ladenness of just burdens that seem to be there. And all I could think about was Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you weary? Are your burdens too heavy to carry? Maybe it's sin, maybe it's suffering, maybe it's both. Jesus offers rest. Listen, I, I know that sounds simple. Some of you have heard that before. But you still don't know what it means. It means stepping down from our self-sufficient ways, learning to walk in the midst of the ruin of our lives, in the midst of dependence and reliance on Him to direct our lives, even as we approach our sin and our suffering, knowing that He's there and He's for us. As we think about our own lives and the rubble of them, it simply means coming to Him. And, I mean, to be honest, this isn't like, here's five steps to make your life better. No, we're talking about this redemption is found in Jesus. It is a relationship, and he will meet you right where you are. I don't care your rubble. He will meet you where you are. He is more than sufficient, and he is more than able. And the invitation is to come. He can transform you. He will change you. Think of a quote from Francis Bernadine. He was in the 12th and 13th century. And originally he was a womanizer, and he was a poet. And at one point, he said these words. He said, you will see that one day I shall be adored by the whole world. And you know what? He is today. 
He's known by many as Francis of Assisi. Do you understand? God is able to take the rubble, the sin and the suffering of a self-centered, egotistical man and make him someone who actually pours out his life for the least. Where's the rubble in your life? What are you walking through these days? Go to the one who will meet you where you are. Will you go to him? Will you come to him? It's looking in, but now it's looking out. You see, when you experience even a little bit of that grace and kindness in Christ, though you and I are far from perfect, Jesus actually calls you into the rebuild with him. I mean, that in essence is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. It is, it is this, let us go and build. That's Jesus calling his people out, let's go. And that means that we are sent out into a world that is broken down in the midst of ruins. And let me be honest, as you look out, do you not wonder, can anything actually good come from this? Could God actually do anything in the midst of this time, this moment? Are there any optimists left? I think we need to remember some things. <clears throat> I think of consider a man for a moment who, you know, basically always thinks he's right. A man who talks before he thinks. Someone who doesn't know when to be silent. You know, the kind of guy who, like, in a certain setting, just doesn't know his place, just always speaks up, sticks his foot in his mouth. Do you know who I'm talking about? That's, that's Peter. The one who walked with Jesus, took his foot in his mouth over and over and over again, who left Jesus out to dry in the end, like left him, denied him. I mean, who wants to go deal with those ruins? And yet, what does Jesus do? He actually, in Peter, what does he see? A man who by his grace and power can feed his sheep restores him. Consider for a moment someone who's just very religious, very zealous, like over the top, you know, like very judgy, right? And, um, you know, they kind of just wants, that just looks down on others. Like, I made the better choice. Who's that? Think of John the Apostle. You know, he was one of the brothers known as the Sons of Thunder, and do you know how he got that name? Well, he got it because they went through a town, that town didn't want to hang out with Jesus, and they're like, hey, let's just call down some fire here, Jesus. That's pretty judgy, right? But later on, if you read 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he's like this softy. Like, he is so soft. He's the one who wrote, God is love. Like, <clears throat> if there's anybody who's just tender, it's John. Do you see what God did there? He took someone judgy and made someone who was full of grace and kindness and love. He took the ruins of that and made something beautiful. Or consider for a moment a woman who's just troubled, no doubt been abused, 
by all accounts, just mentally and emotionally unstable. It's the kind of person where I'm sure if you showed up at her door, you just weren't sure what kind of person you were going to get, you know? One day it might be nice, next day it might be like, ah, you okay? Well, I'm thinking of Mary Magdalene. You know, the one who in scriptures say seven demons were cast out. And yet, do you know who she became? She was the one mentioned in Luke 8 who supported Jesus' ministry throughout, was with him right next to him, even at the cross. And on the resurrection, she's the eyewitness. Do you see? Like, there's the rubble, and this is the beauty. Listen, let's be honest for a moment. If we hung out with any of the individuals that I just mentioned, we'd probably be like, uh, I don't think much can come from that. But that's what God works with, because guess what? That's all he has to work with, right? Because we're all a mess. God, through his mercy, transformed them. Redeemer City, where is the rubble around you? You don't have to walk very far. What relationships around you are broken? Where do you see those who are hurting, who are suffering, who needs encouragement, who needs compassion? Who around you, perhaps though not a Christian, just needs a friend? In your vocation, in your neighborhood, what's happening there? Do you see the rubble? Because of God's work in Christ, you understand that that is where he calls you in to rebuild with him. Recently, um, I heard a story of Glenn Lowry, and he was an African-American tenured professor of economics at Harvard until he lost his job at Harvard because of an addiction to crack. Lost his family, was living in a hotel room. But today, he's actually a tenured professor at Brown, and this is what he says. This is what changed his life. Quote, Evangelical Christians and AA helped me to see there could be new life. That's probably not going to run front page in Madison, right? But do you understand? That's just simple Christianity. People who understand the gospel, who are being healed, going out and seeing those that are hurt and stepping into the midst of the rubble. And listen, our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is the one who has been raised from the dead and who now sends us out to participate with him in this great project of redemption. <clears throat> and here's the hope. That we may strengthen our hands and say just as those in Nehemiah did in his day, let us build. Let's pray. Father, we um, come to you today uh, knowing that we need you freshly, not only in our own lives, but also for the lives of those around us. 
we're grateful, God, that you are strong enough, merciful enough to meet us right where we are. And we would pray by your Spirit uh, that you might, as we traverse even tomorrow morning into this week, that as we are around the ruins of our day, Lord, that you give us grace and mercy and compassion and even courage to step in to the ruins and be a part of what you're doing. And we ask this all because you're good and because you're great. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.